Thank you for checking out the sermon at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are, and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. Once again, thanks for checking out this sermon. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. I want to begin tonight by letting you hear something that I think will bring back some memories for you, all right? So I want you to think about what this makes you think of when you hear it. You ready? Let's play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's starting to come back to you, right? Yeah, nobody wants to hear that when you're in a boat, right? That's the last theme song you want to hear when you're out deep sea fishing, right? Because when you hear that, you immediately think of what? Jaws, Jaws right? Now, some of them this morning, I forgot, you know, I go to a lot of the UNLV games. Somebody yelled out, the Rebels, right? Because they do that at the beginning of the game. But most of us, unless you're just indoctrinated there with UNLV, which I have become, but I forgot about that this morning, the, the Rebel chant, most of us think about the movie Jaws. And for me, it brings back a particular memory because in 1983, if you can remember back that far, right? 1983, I snuck out of my house with some buddies and we made our way to see the first ever movie in 3D that we could see. And it was the release of Jaws 3 in 3D. Now, if you remember much about the movie, you remember it was a horrible movie, right? By, by Jaws 3, not as if the first one had a great plot line, but by the third one, they had really run out of stuff for that shark to eat, right? The acting was bad. It received all kinds of terrible awards. But for me, it was the first time I'd ever been to a movie that was made in 3D. <laughs> now, most movies released today, at least action movies, get released in a 3D version. But back then, 3D movies, that you just hadn't seen them. They had been around for a long time, but they hadn't caught on in major motion picture release. 1983, with the release of Jaws 3D, it was kind of the first wave of major motion pictures being released in 3D format. And the thing about a 3D movie, how many of you have ever been to a 3D movie before, right? So most of you know the deal. You go to a 3D movie and you can sit in the theater and you can see the same movie that everybody is watching. But when you go in, they give you a pair of these, right? These 3D glasses. Now, you're watching the same movie everybody's watching, but as soon as you put the 3D glasses on, right? Now, all of a sudden, you see it very differently. It's the same movie that everybody's looking at, but now with the glasses, you see it totally differently. As a matter of fact, I can remember as a little 12-year-old boy, 13-year-old boy getting out of the house and going to watch Jaws in 3D. We snuck into the PG movie. That was really getting out there in, in Alabama. We snuck in to get there to the PG movie and we got to watch Jaws 3D. And I can remember there were times in the movie where you're watching it and you just grab the glasses and take them off, right? Because the shark is like right in your face. But as soon as you take the glasses off, he's way over there and he's not as intimidating, right? 
You say, Pastor, why are you telling us about 3D movies? Well, I'm going somewhere with it. We're in the middle of a study right now, if you're visiting with us, straight through the, the letter in the New Testament we call 1 Peter. If you have your Bible, I want you to go ahead and open to 1 Peter chapter 4. In 1 Peter, the author here, Peter, has been laying down some spiritual principles for us. And one of them that has been a dominant theme throughout this letter is this reality I want to put back up on the screen. The Christian life is simply who you are in Christ becoming Christ in you. We've talked about that over and over as we've walked through this letter together. Peter has laid down for us biblical foundation about who we are in Christ. Remember, he talked about you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are chosen of God. All of these things that Peter laid down for us about who we are in Christ. And the Christian life, we understand from what the Scripture teaches us, the Christian life is not you and I trying to live for Jesus. The Christian life is who you are in Christ, now becoming Christ in you. Literally, his life overflowing and spilling out of your life. And one aspect, of this new life that we now have in Christ is a new way of thinking or a new perspective. Like these 3D glasses. We're still living on the same earth that we were living on before we came to know Christ. We're still living in many ways the same life with the same people around us. We have the same ups and the same downs we had before Christ. We have the same challenges of people that don't know Christ at all. We have some of the same highs and the same lows. But now in Christ, even though we're experiencing the same life in Christ, we now see it very differently. And what Simon Peter is doing here from chapter 4 to the end of this letter is he's teaching us some of the ways that we now see things differently. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Christian life is much more than a new perspective. The Christian life is a new life. It's Christ in us. But one aspect of that new life in Christ is a new perspective. We look at things differently. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse number 1. Then we'll read a little bit more in just a moment. Look what he says. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. That little word purpose there is a word that means literally what's in the mind. And here's what he's saying to us. Since Jesus has gone through everything and more that you and I will ever go through or experience, we need to learn to think the same way. We need to have in our mind the same thing that Christ had in his mind as he lived on earth. Now, I know what we're immediately thinking as we read that, but pastor, I'm, I'm not Jesus, right? I can't, I can't do that. I don't have that capacity. Well, let me remind you what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at it. This is J.B. Phillips' translation of the New Testament. Look what he said. Incredible as it may sound, we who are, say the next word out loud, spiritual. We who are spiritual have the very thoughts of Christ. Here's what that means. Part of being in Christ and Christ being in you and in me is that we now have the mind of Christ. His mind, his thoughts shaping the way we see things. 
shaping the way we understand the world that we live in. And what Peter is challenging us here to do, he says we are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. Arm ourselves with this purpose. Don't, don't miss this. The, word, the phrase arm yourselves is a military expression. It's implying preparation for the battle. And here's what Peter's reminding us. As a follower of Christ, there is a daily battle between living out my new life in Christ, which he's calling here spiritual living, the new life that we have in Christ, Christ in us, living through us, which gives us a new perspective on life. He says there's a daily battle between living my new life in Christ, which is spiritual living, and living out of my old way of thinking, which is my flesh. Anybody in here tonight can identify with that battle? There's a real battle that is going on daily, moment by moment, where I am battling between living out of my new life in Christ or allowing my old flesh, my old way of thinking to dominate who I am. Here's what Peter's challenging us with. This idea that in Christ we've been made new. And we should arm ourselves. We should prepare for the battle by appropriating the mind of Christ into our lives. So let's, let's read this first few verses out of this chapter and then unpack some truths here as we begin this series called Spiritual Living. That's what we're going to talk about these first few weeks is spiritual living. Because what Peter's going to do with these verses is he's going to give us some examples of what this new way of thinking, this new perspective in Christ. He's going to talk to us first of all about here's what it looks like as we live just our everyday life. Then he's going to transition and begin to talk to us about how we now see spiritual suffering. We, we look at suffering different. We still suffer as Christians, but we now look at it very differently. Then he's going to talk to us about the idea of spiritual leadership and how we now see leadership differently because of who we are in Christ. Then he's going to finish this letter by talking to us about spiritual warfare, the real battle that's going on out there and how we're to engage in that battle. But he's going to show us all of these things. We now see them differently because of who we are in Christ. So let's, let's read it. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning there in verse 1. Therefore, since, you, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So, as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Peter's describing here what spiritual living looks like. And I want to summarize it for you with three characteristics. Here's the first one. Spiritual living is not driven by my desires, but is consumed with the desires of God. I want you to read that out loud with me off the screen. You ready? One, two, three. Spiritual living 
is not driven by my desires, but is consumed with the desires of God. Here's what Peter says. When you and I begin to live with this new way of thinking that is Christ in us, we no longer live simply for what we want. We live for what our Father in heaven wants. Now that flies in the face of American culture because everything we're wired to do as Americans, we are wired to make every decision that we make, to make every move that we make, to make every career advancement decision that we make based on how does this get me what I want. And here's what Peter says. When you and I begin to live out of this new way of life, which is Christ in us, we're no longer driven simply by what we want. But we now have a consuming desire for that which pleases our Father in heaven. So before we go any further past this, think about that. Think about the last seven days of your life. Just the last week. What drives you? Do you live moment by moment simply for what pleases you? Do you make decisions day in and day out based on what you want? Or are you consumed with a passion to please your Father in heaven. Look what he said in verse 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh. What is that? From the time you come to know Jesus to the time you go home to be with Jesus, we all have the rest of our time, whatever that is. For some it's months, for some it's years and years and years. Whatever that length of time is. He says, for the rest of your time in the flesh, you live no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. See how different that is to how we lived before Christ? I love the way the message translates or paraphrases that verse. Look at it on the screen. He says, then you'll be able to live out your days free to pursue what God wants instead of being tyrannized by what you want. Peter here is contrasting these two ideas, the lusts of the flesh, the will of God, what we desire and the desires of God, what pleases us and what (coughs) pleases us. The Father. He first of all uses this phrase, the lusts of men. The lusts of men is a phrase that, that can be translated strong desire or longing or craving. Grudem says it's those sinful desires that lead people to disobey God's laws. It's what we would call our flesh. And Peter wants us to understand two things about our flesh. Number one, we still have them. If you think the moment that you came to Christ, All of the old desires were going to be gone and you would never have to struggle with any of that again. That I've given my life to Jesus and now it's just going to be easy street. I don't have to struggle with stuff anymore. Welcome to the party, right? That's not the deal. That's not the way salvation works. Peter says that in Christ, we still have lusts of our flesh and they have some power in our life. We still have them. But here's the second thing Peter wants us to understand. They no longer have us. 
You see, in Christ, the, the dominating power of the flesh has been broken. And now in Christ, we can moment by moment experience victory over the flesh. You see, before, we were in bondage and enslaved to the desires of our flesh. It captivated us. But in Christ, those chains have been broken. Yes, we still have that old flesh that we have to deal with until we get to heaven to be with Jesus. But we don't have to live dominated by the desires of our flesh anymore. We have been set free in Christ. Listen. And there's the battle that he's talking about. He says daily we must arm ourselves. We must arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. The battle daily is, am I going to choose today to allow Christ in me to live through me, which is spiritual life? Or am I going to allow my flesh... To just have its way. That's the moment by moment battle. And Peter here in verse 3. Describes for us. Some of what the flesh looks like. Now this is not an exhaustive list by any means. But look at verse 3. Look at the words that he uses. He begins by saying sensuality and lusts. What are these two words? These are two expressions of the flesh. That are evident when by my attitudes or actions, I pursue that which simply pleases me with no regard for others or no regard for what's right or wrong. That's sensuality and lusts. It's I'm just living for me. With my attitudes, my thoughts, my desires, or with actions, I'm choosing to do things that simply are about pleasing me. That's what the flesh looks like. When you let the flesh take control, you begin to think and act in ways that are simply about what pleases me. Doesn't matter what it does to anybody else. Doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. Does it please me? Then he gives a whole other list of three things he kind of lumps together. Drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties. These words are all pretty self-explanatory, but what they all have in common is they are a way to escape reality. They are a, an intentional escaping of reality in such a way that tries to remove moral inhibitions. That's what he's describing here. Very common in the Greco-Roman culture to, to have these kinds of parties that existed simply to, to get people drunk so moral inhibitions were removed so they could then act however they wanted to act without thinking about it at all. That's what it looks like when the flesh takes over. Then he uses a third expression here. He talks about abominable idolatries. Simply the worship of idols. We hear that and think, well, at least I don't do that. You know, I don't have any little idols sitting around my house. But the problem is idols come in a lot of forms and fashions. You can idolize money. You can idolize power or prestige. You can idolize influence. Here's what he's really saying. When your life begins to revolve around anything other than God, that's idolatry. And that's the flesh taking over again. This is not an exhaustive list. He's just giving some examples. Living to please me. 
trying to remove moral restraint so that I can just do what I want to do, worshiping something other than God. All of these are forms of idolatry. And here's what Peter is saying. In Christ, that is not who I am anymore. It's who I used to be, but it's not who I am in Christ. That's why Paul said it this way in Ephesians 2 and verse 3. He said, among them we too all formerly lived. He said, this is how we used to live. In the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of God even as the rest. And here's what Peter's saying. Listen, we still have those evil desires. That flesh is still present. But in Christ We have now been given a new outlook on life. It is no longer about what I want. It's about what He wants. In in Christ, my desires are being changed. He's making my desires conform to His desires. It's what the psalmist said in Psalm 37, verse 4. Psalm 37, 4, the psalmist said, Delight yourself in the Lord. Now read the last part with me. And He will give you the desires of your heart. Here's the problem with that verse. Most people only know the second half. Why isn't God answering my prayer? He said He would give me the desires of my heart. you got to read the first half. Delight yourself in the Lord. You see, as you and I begin to appropriate into our lives the life of Christ, as we begin to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, as we begin to delight ourselves in the Lord, here's what happens. Our desires begin to be conformed to His desire so that what we want is what He wants. You see, spiritual living is not living for what I want. It's for what He wants. And that's the thing He contrasts it with here, the will of God. The will of God. We hear that phrase, the will of God. And most of us, what we think about when we hear it, are something like the demands of God. We hear the will of God as this overbearing, rob you of life, suck all the joy out of the room. Well, I've got to go do the will of God, you know. <laughs> Let me give you a new definition for the will of God. That which pleases and creates joy in the heart of God. That's the will of God. And you see, spiritual living is me not living for what pleases me and brings me joy. Spiritual living is when I begin to live for what pleases Him and brings Him joy. But don't miss this. This is so awesome. When we begin to be consumed with what pleases Him and brings Him joy, guess what we find out? What pleases Him and brings Him joy is the same thing that pleases me and brings me joy. You see, I find my fulfillment in His will. Here's what I want you to hear me say. The flesh is lying to you. You see, the flesh says, you need all this other stuff to be happy. You need all this other stuff to find fulfillment. You need all this other stuff to be satisfied. Well, let me ask you a question. How's that working out? Go to any rehab clinic in town. Ask them how that's fulfilled them, the pursuit of those lusts of the flesh. 
Why do people pay tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars to get some of that junk out of their life? Because the flesh is lying to you. The only way to find real contentment, the only way to find real satisfaction, the only way to find real joy is in being consumed with that which pleases the Father. And when I begin to be consumed with that which pleases the Father, guess what I find? I find joy and peace and contentment and happiness in my own life. Spiritual living is living for that which pleases the Father. Let me give you the second one. Spiritual living is not a life that blends in, but a life that stands out. Look at verse number 4. I love this. Look what he says here. In all this, in all of what? Well, he's referring back to verse 3. All this stuff that we used to do that we don't do anymore... He says in verse 4, in all this, they, who are they? The ones you used to do that stuff with? They are, what does he say? What's the word? Surprised. It comes from a Greek word that the root of this word is the word stranger. He says, the people that used to hang with you and watch what you did now see you and you're different and they go, that's strange. That's odd. That's, that's not who they used to be. It's like another person here. What's happening? Look what he says. They're surprised that you do not run with him in the same excesses. That he, he says, they're shocked that, that you don't do what you used to do. That you don't go with them where you used to go. That you don't act and think the way you used to act. And then it says, and they malign you. Here's the point. As you and I begin to live the new life in Christ with a new perspective, those around us will notice a difference that is Christ in us. When I first came to Christ, I was a freshman in college at the University of North Alabama. And up until that time, I had a bunch of buddies, just guy friends. We Through the senior year of high school and into college, we hung out and did a lot of stuff together. A lot of stuff that, you know, not proud of today, but you, you run with a group of guys, you kind of get in a pack and you kind of just do what everybody else does. And we were doing all that kind of stuff. And then I met Christ as a freshman in college and I tried to go back and, you know, hang out with those buddies and I didn't want to do what they did anymore. And they looked at me and said, what's the deal? You're, you're not... You're not who you used to be. They were surprised by that. When who you are in Christ becomes Christ in you, it's not a life that blends in. It's a life that stands out. So before we unpack that anymore, let, let the question just settle in for a minute. Do you blend in? Or do you stand out? Is your life in Christ one in which others see Christ in you to the degree that they say, what's the deal? What's different about you? At school, at work, in your neighborhood, at the store, at the ball game, they see something different in you? Here are the implications of this. When, when our life stands out, two things are reality. Number one, because your life stands out, you will have opportunities. 
You have opportunities. You see, usually, like with my friends, when they say, what's going on? What's the deal? The next question is, what happened to you? And you in that moment can say, well, I've decided to turn over a new leaf and make some changes. Or you can get honest and you can say, hey, don't look at me. It's not me at all. I'm still the same guy that I used to be. But let me tell you what I did. I met Jesus and it's now Christ in me that's changing me from the inside out. And he's changing the things I want to do. And you get to begin to have an opportunity to have a gospel conversation about the difference Jesus can make in a life. Because your life stands out, you'll have Opportunities. That's what Paul was writing about in uh, Colossians chapter 4. Listen to what he said. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how to respond to each person. You see, the life that I live creates a platform from which I can share the gospel with other people. Because our life stands out, it opens the door for conversations about who Jesus is and the difference he can make in our life. William Barclay said it this way, the Christian must of necessity be a missionary. It is not by his words but by his life that he will attract people to or repel them from Christianity. On the Christian, there is laid the great responsibility, not of simply talking about Christ, but of showing men Christ, not just in words, but in life. Because our life stands out, we'll have opportunities. But I want you to listen to the second thing, and I want you to lean in, all right? Because I want to be sure you're hearing me on this point. Because your life stands out, there will also be opposition. For a few generations, we've kind of gotten a pass on this in our country. For a few generations, our society we know as the United States of America has pretty well, not perfectly, but in general, embraced moral principles as outlined in the Word of God. It's what our society was in many ways founded on. Our legal system was rooted in the righteousness and the law defined in Scripture. But the more our society drifts from the morals and principles that we find outlined in the Word of God, although we have gotten a pass for a few generations in America on this issue of opposition because of our faith, you need to understand something. We will face opposition because our life stands out. Doesn't blend in. Because of Christ in us, we'll face opposition. Peter is writing here in this letter to to Christians in the first century who were facing persecution. But it wasn't persecution necessarily instigated by the government. The government allowed it. But it was really societal persecution. One writer said it this way. There is little evidence of state-sponsored persecution that robbed early Christians of their lives. Instead, unbelievers were at first puzzled and then outraged 
by the failure of believers to participate in activities that were a normal part of Greco-Roman culture. The Bible says that they begin to malign them. What does the word malign mean? It means to, to speak evil of somebody. It means to try to harm, wound, or injure somebody's reputation, somebody's character with your words. Right after I became a Christian as a freshman in college, I told you a few moments ago, I was at that time attending a liberal arts university. I wasn't attending a Christian school, just a regular liberal arts school. And but I'd come to know Christ. I, I changed my major over to history because I felt like God was calling me into ministry and I just needed a, a platform of a degree that would allow me to go to seminary. So I changed my major to history and started studying history. But, but I saw this class that was being offered in school that, that really attracted me because I was a, a new Christian and I wanted to grow in my faith. And I thought, man, if I can somehow combine school and growing in Christ, that'd be great. So there was this class in our, in our campus prospectus that was called the Life and Letters of the Apostle Paul. And I thought, that's going to be awesome. I'm going to get to go to school here in college, and I'm going to get to talk about Jesus in the classroom. It's going to be wonderful. So I sign up for the class. I get into the class. It's a packed room that first day. And day one of the life and letters of Paul. Life and letters of Paul. That's New Testament stuff, right? Day one, the professor stands in front of our class and begins to discount the credibility of the Bible with things like the flood didn't really happen. Noah's just a fairy tale and a myth. Jonah wasn't really swallowed by a whale. I'm thinking, that's not even in the life and letters of Paul. What's he doing? But he's, but he's attacking. And I had been raised, even though I was a new Christian, I'd been raised in Christianity enough to, I knew a lot more than the average student because my dad had been a pastor. So I was pretty well informed about the life and letters of Paul when I got into class. And he starts off on this stuff. And I had at that point in my life a lot more zeal than I had wisdom. So we engaged in a heated conversation in front of the whole class for the first two weeks of class. I think other students came to class just to watch me and the professor go back and forth. They'd get there early to get good seats so they could hear what was going on. But over the course of the first few weeks of the class, the tone kind of changed and I began to be kind of ostracized by other students and made fun of to the point that, <clears throat> to my own shame, it's the only class in all of my education, high school, college, seminary, master's level work, the only class I ever failed, and I failed it because I quit. I just quit going. I didn't drop the class. I just, I just stopped attending because I began to be maligned. And I was new in Christ and I thought I knew a lot more than I did, and some of the reasons I was maligned was because of my own attitude in the classroom, but some of it was because of a genuine conviction in my own heart about what I believed the Scriptures to be and the stand that I was taking. And I felt just a small taste of what it was to be maligned. As you and I allow Christ to live in and through us, others will see this and listen to me carefully at times you will face persecution 
sometimes your walk with Jesus will cost you relationships. Sometimes your walk with Jesus will cost you job advancement. Sometimes your walk with Jesus will cost you business opportunities. And listen to me carefully. The further our society drifts from Scripture, I'm not saying that we're going to be laying our lives on the line for the gospel here in America next week or next month. But, but listen to me. Much quicker than any of us ever dreamed, there's about to be a cost in our country for simply allowing Christ in you to live through you. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, look what he said. Indeed, what's the next word? What's all mean? All, right? You don't need a dictionary to define it. It means all. Indeed, all, he didn't say most or some. All who desire to live, say it out loud, godly in Christ Jesus, now say it out loud, will be persecuted. He didn't say might be. He said will be. Wayne Grudem said this. I thought it was very prophetic. Silent non-participation in sin often implies condemnation of that sin. And rather than change their ways, unbelievers will slander those who have pained their consciences. Can I give you some good news in the midst of this discouraging moment? <laughs> look, look down in your Bible. We're going to get there in a few weeks, but 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Look down at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. He said, don't be shocked. Don't, don't be surprised when you're maligned, when you're persecuted for who Christ is in you, as though uh, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. When you lose that job, when you're looked over for that promotion, when that person walks out of your life because of who Christ is in you, he says, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. How is that possible? Look at verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Hear what he says there? Be encouraged. It's not you that they are maligning. It is Christ in you. And rejoice that you are being conformed to his image. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about this stuff we bring on ourselves because as Christians, we parade through the streets with an arrogant attitude like we've been called to be judge and jury of everybody's life. All right, That's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about genuine, authentic Christianity being fleshed out of our lives. Christ in us will bring opposition. But we can rejoice because it's Christ in us. 
And it's affirmation that we are living spiritual, godly lives. Let me give you the third and final principle, and we'll, we'll finish with this one. Spiritual living is not distracted with this life, but is focused on the life to come. In verses 5 and 6, Peter wraps up this paragraph of Scripture by turning their attention towards the future, to the end of time. Look what he says. But they, who's they? Those that are maligning you, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Peter turns their attention to the reality that this life is not all there is. And he gives us two great reminders when we're looking at life from a spiritual perspective. As we focus on the life to come, first of all, he says we will have a passion for those who don't know Christ. Did you hear what he said there in verse 5? They will give an account. Now, if we're not careful, here's how we read that. They're maligning you. They're persecuting you. But hold on. God's going to get them. Their day's coming. That's not what Peter's saying here. If that's what you thought in your heart, just repent now, okay? That's not what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. Those people that are maligning you, our hearts should be broken because one day they are going to stand before God. And you know why they're acting the way they're acting? Because they're lost. And listen to me, child of God. Lost people act like lost people because they're lost people. And but for the grace of God, you and I would act the exact same way. Peter here <coughs> is reminding us of the heart that Jesus had when he was on the cross. Remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he looked out at those that put him there? He didn't say, God, get them. No. What did he say? He said, Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing. When we have the mind of Christ and we begin to see things differently, we live focused on the life to come. It gives us a passion for those who don't know Him. And, and then finally, we'll have a peace in all of life's circumstances. That's really what verse 6 is all about. One of the things that they were maligning these Christians with, they were making fun of them because some of the Christians died because of their faith. Some of them just died of natural causes. And the unbelievers started making fun of the believers and basically saying, what good is it to be a Christian? You die just like we die. And Peter writes to him and says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh. I mean, here's what he means. Here's what he's saying. Yeah, they died just like everybody died in the flesh. But look what he says. So they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Of God. Yeah, they died, but death was not the end. They're as alive as they've ever been in the presence of God Himself. And when we're living spiritually, we're not distracted by what's happening in this life. We are focused on a life that is to come. And when we get there to be with Him, and the good news about when we get there is we don't have the battle anymore. Amen? The flesh is gone, and we just get to live forever out of the overflow intimacy with God for what pleases Him and what satisfies us. But as we live in this life, focused on the life to come, 
When we get there, we'll look back on this life. This life's not even going to be just a blip on the radar compared to eternity. And Paul writes and he says this. Paul said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present life, they are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us there. So Peter's talking to us about spiritual living. We come to know Christ. We start seeing things differently. We no longer live for what we want. We live for what he wants. We don't live a life that blends in. We, we live a life that stands out. And we don't live a life that's distracted by this life, but it's focused on the life that's to come.